Hello and welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group, and once again, really happy to bring you another episode of the podcast. So look, in today's show, I speak with Scott Eblen, who is the author of The Next Level, What Insiders Know About Executive Success. And this was a, another really interesting interview for me because as I read through Scott's book, I thought there was a lot of really great practical tips. And it also gives you a nice framework in terms of how you can go about uh, being more successful in, as an executive and how you can also really impact those around you. So I'm going to strongly recommend that you uh, check out the book. Once again, it's called The Next Level, What Insiders Know About Executive Success. So happy listening and on with the show. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Welcome, uh, Scott, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of an insight into Scott. Who is Scott Eblen? That's a great question. uh, Philosophical question, maybe, but Scott Eblen, if I'm going to speak in the third person, Scott Eblen is uh, an executive coach, uh, a speaker, and an author, and uh, a former corporate person who 18 years ago uh, started the Eblen Group with with his spouse. And uh, our focus has evolved over the years, and it's best summarized in the idea that if you intend to lead at your best, you have to live at your best. And I've written a couple of books that are on both halves of that equation, both leading and living at your best. And this new edition of The Next Level, I think, captures everything that I think about, coach about, speak about, write about in, in one volume. So why did you decide to write The Next Level? Yeah, so that kind of goes back to the very beginning of of being an executive coach. Like I said a moment ago, I started this 18 years ago, and I'd been a corporate manager and executive for about 15 years prior to the coaching uh, business and found myself uh, at that point in my life, I was quite often the youngest whatever. I'm, I'm too old for that now, but back then that happened fairly regularly. And so as the youngest VP or the youngest executive member of the executive team or whatever it was. And I just found myself in over my head a lot, honestly, and like not knowing what to do. And especially as I hit the executive ranks, I found that the expectations were all, always high, but very rarely defined very clearly. And then I got into coaching. And um, I think, you know, like attracts like, I started uh, attracting individual coaching clients who were in situations in their companies that were similar to the ones that I'd been in in mine in my, in my corporate career. And I was encouraged by uh, a coach named Marshall Goldsmith, who probably a lot of your listeners have heard of. He's pretty well known and is a very successful author. And Marshall knows a lot of people. And I uh, was with a group of coaches with him back in 2004. And he encouraged all of us to think about the book that we wanted to write. And so I started thinking about that and, you know, there's an old thing about write what you know uh, and what I knew was what it was like to be in over your head and trying to figure out what the expectations are of executives and how to operate at the next level. And so that, you know, back in the early 
months of 2004 was the initial seeds of the idea and over the next couple of years ended up writing the book in its first edition that came out in the spring of 2006. Okay, and the, the upcoming edition is the third edition, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and I'm really excited about that. I Honestly, I never thought I'd have an opportunity to write even a book, you know, <laughs> at one point in my life and to have the third edition of, of my first book coming out is, is exciting for me. And I'm, I'm uh, I, like I said, I'm really happy to be, have the opportunity to put what I've learned over the years, you know, and working with, you know, different clients and working with companies all over the world. You know, just from that experience, you learn so much from that experience of working with clients and, and, uh, you know, be able to codify that and summarize all that in this third edition is, uh, I feel really grateful for that. Okay. So um, I, I want to uh, start with this, uh, the next level model of executive presence, which is mm-hmm. sort of the, the, the framework for the book. And that's sort of broken down into personal presence, team presence, and organizational presence. I'd like to, I'm going to explore that in more detail, but are you able to give the listeners just a bit of a high level overview of, of that and how you came to that model? Sure. Um, and this goes back to the to the early days of in 2004, thinking through the book, and I've kind of enhanced it a little bit in this third edition. You mentioned leadership presence. And so when I talked a minute ago about executive presence or the expectations of executives being always high, but usually not really clearly defined, what I was trying to do with that table was summarize in a nutshell, basically, what are the expectations in those three categories, personal team and organizational presence? And how do you show up as a leader in each of those three domains, personal team and organizational? So that's kind of the, uh, if I was describing the table, you know, the, uh, the left-hand side of the table are those three buckets, personal team and organizational. And the two columns next to that are picking up and letting go. What behaviors do you need to pick up and what behaviors do you need to let go of uh, as you're making these transitions into next level roles or even next level situations in your career. And so there are nine sets of behaviors that one needs to pick up or let go of that are represented in that table. We could probably talk more about that as we go. The kind of the um, additional insight that I've had over the years that I've talked about in the third edition in relation to the basic model is I think for those three buckets, personal, team, and organizational, you can translate those really into three uh, key leadership imperatives. And so for the personal space, I think it's about managing yourself. That's really what that part of the book is all about, is managing yourself. And then the next, the team is really about leveraging your team to get bigger things done and you know to work through and with your team to get bigger things done. And then the organizational piece is really about engaging your colleagues because that's where a lot of the additional value is created is through that collaboration that comes when you really effectively engage with your colleagues. So manage yourself, leverage your team, engage your colleagues. And I, I think about it now as almost like a pyramid where manage yourself is at the foundation of the pyramid because if you're not doing that effectively, then you're not going to really be very effective in leveraging your team. You're going to make a lot of wrong decisions your relationships won't be as strong as they could be with your team and you're going to overlook some things and go too deep on other things and it just doesn't work. And so if you're not leveraging your team effectively, then you don't usually have the bandwidth to engage your colleagues effectively. 
And again, that's you end up leaving value on the table if you're not doing that. So manage yourself, leverage your team, engage your colleagues. I think it really all starts with managing yourself. So I'm interested in exploring quite quite a number of the, the, the nine behaviors that you mentioned. And probably the first one is this idea of picking up confidence in your presence and letting go of doubt in how you contribute. Are you able to share a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think that's kind of the starting point. There's I, one of the opening lines I have in the chapter on that pick up and let go distinction is insecure people make lousy leaders. And, you know, I think if you, if your listeners were to think back about the best boss they've ever had and think, I would encourage them right now, actually think of a specific person who's the best boss you've ever had and think about for a moment about why were they, you know, what were the characteristics that made them your best boss? And then conversely, who's the worst boss you ever had? And I've learned from talking to people that usually comes a lot more quickly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the worst boss. And the reasons why they're the worst boss usually come much more quickly. If it's a group of people, I can't keep up with the answers quite often when they start talking about why their worst boss was the worst boss. But it really comes down to the, the, the distinction between the best and the worst is the best bosses have a quiet confidence in themselves. I was just talking with an association, uh, trade association president earlier this afternoon about his feedback on one of my clients who's on his, on his national board here in the U S and, and he was talking about my client and he was talking about some of the best CEOs that he's ever worked with. They have a quiet confidence. It's not cockiness, but you know, they, they believe in themselves. They believe in their point of view. They give others space to, to talk and they listen when they talk, but you know, it's, it's this grounded confidence. And if you think about the worst boss you've ever had, they micromanaged or they withheld information or they went on rages or whatever. And if you boil it down about all those negative behaviors that the worst bosses exhibit, why is that? Well, at the root of it, they're insecure. They're insecure people. And so, you know, you pick up confidence, you let go of doubt. When you move into these bigger jobs, uh, they're really scary sometimes and they're really intimidating sometimes. And you're working with really talented people and you get this little voice inside your head that says, oh my gosh, I really shouldn't be here. There's a huge mistake when they promoted me into this thing. They only knew what I don't know and blah, 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 blah. And I uh, refer to that little voice as the itty bitty shitty committee. You know, it's, it's just like, it's, it makes you do weird things and you've got to recognize that little inner voice that is getting in the way and understand how you really are when you're at your best and lean into that. And if you do that, then you're going to show up with more confidence. So there's an, there's an excerpt I, I'd like to read, uh, which is uh, very much talking about results and relationships. To achieve and sustain results over the long run at the executive level, strong relationships with peers, top leadership and functional team members across the organization are critical. Your success in managing relationships will stem from the confidence you have in yourself and your ability to work well with others to make things happen. Effective relationship management comes from regularly demonstrating the behaviors that you engage in when you're leading and living at your best. Mm-hmm. So why, why do you think results and relationships are so closely tied together? Well, I, I quite often I think of, of it like an XY graph, you know, where on the vertical axis, it doesn't matter which one you have on the vertical axis, but let's just say that results-oriented behaviors are on the vertical axis and relational-oriented behaviors are on the horizontal. 
the best leaders work in the upper right hand corner of that graph. You can get results in the short run. Uh, perhaps you can get results in the short run by by ma- micromanaging and pushing your agenda far ahead of everybody else's agenda and, and so forth. But in the longer run, that doesn't work because in the longer run, you're, you're working with the same people month in and month out, year in and year out quite often. And people are people. You know, they like to work with people that they like. <laughs> they like to work with people who aren't assholes. And, um, and if you show up like a jerk, then eventually people are going to disconnect from you. So, you know, those relational behaviors are really, really key to long-term success. From a utilitarian standpoint, that's important. I think from a humanistic standpoint, there are other reasons why that's important. Uh, people with strong relationships, it's proven through many studies, live longer and are, are, are healthier than people who don't have strong relationships in their life. Uh, and then the results, you know, I, I used to have a phrase that I would sometimes use, NGB, which was an acronym for he's a nice guy, but, you know, it's a, you, know, you want to be a nice guy or a nice gal, but you still have to get stuff done, you know, and you still have to focus on uh, managing yourself, leveraging your team, you know, to achieve things. And, you know, it's, there's the follow through behaviors and there's the metric oriented behaviors and all kinds of things that are really much more focused on specific results and achieving those results. And so it's a merit really of, of the two categories and the the most effective leaders are great at both. So I'd like to explore this idea that you, you talk about in terms of picking up your regular renewal of your energy and perspective and letting go of running flat out, flat out to your crash, because I'm finding that a lot of leaders that I speak to, there's a, the expectations are getting more, the resources they're being provided with are less and, and people are, are really starting to recognize this need to look after themselves. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, I see it all the time in, in my work. I, I do a lot of public speaking in, in my work, you know, whether it's keynotes or workshops, I'll be doing one a keynote on Monday for a bunch of people. And the first thing I'm going to ask just to get a sense of the room is, is it to raise your hand kind of question. And I do this a lot with groups raise your hand if in the last year you've been uh, promoted or or, uh, taken a new assignment. And so a lot of hands will go up. Second question is raise your hand within the last year. Uh, You're in the same job you're in a year ago, but the scope is a lot bigger today. Almost every hand in the room goes up on that question with any corporate audience. It's always over 80% and it's usually close to 95 or 100%. And so to me, that's like a leading indicator of what you just said, Julian, which is, uh, people are expected, I think, in this day and age to do more with less. And if you're in the same job you're in a year ago, but the scope is bigger today than it was a year ago, that's just proving the point, right? You're doing more with less or doing more at least with the same amount, right? And I, I don't know about you, but I think it's gotten progressively worse, if you want to use that term, uh, year over year, really, over the last 10 years or so. I think it started with the financial crisis in 2008 organizations very quickly had to put the brakes on and figure out how to do more or less just to survive at that period. But I think they've become really, really excellent at it. And even as the economy has recovered in most parts of the world, um, you know, you still see that. And I think the other thing that happened about 11 years ago was 
Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone and, you know, everybody's carrying a smartphone around in their pocket that has more computing power than the supercomputer NASA used to land men on the moon. Just that one smartphone that you have has more processing power than a mainframe computer that filled up a building, <laughs> you know, back in the, in the space age era. And, um, and so that enables you to, to work all the time if you want to. You can do pretty much do anything on your phone that you can do at your desk. And uh, I've seen research out of the Center for Creative Leadership that the average smartphone-enabled executive or manager is spending, uh, it's an average of 72 hours a week out of 168-hour week, 72 hours a week connected to their work. Um, you know, so it, it adds up. And I think it ends up leaving people in a chronic, all those conditions leave a lot of executives in a chronic state of fight or flight, you know, where their sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive and all the systems in their body that either elevate or, or de-elevate when they're in physical danger and their fight or flight response kicks in to protect them. That same chronic fight or flight response where it's that low grade sense of threat from all the stuff that you know you're not getting done and all the stuff that remains to be done. Um, you know, it has a huge impact on your short-term effectiveness as a leader and an executive. Uh, it has a more significantly uh, terrible impact on your health and well-being and your life expectancy. So it's super important to have routines of renewal uh, for both short-term and long-term reasons. Yeah, yeah. In the book, you talk about uh, this life GPS approach that that you've developed and the sort of the the, the three big questions that that go along with that I'd like to explore those three big questions so can you share the with the listeners what those three big questions are sure I kind of put it in the context of the life GPS which is a the life GPS is a one pager basically it's it's a it's a worksheet where we're asking these three questions you're referring to and encouraging our clients and my readers and your listeners. I'd be happy to provide you a PDF of it if you want to share it with the podcast. Um, but we're encouraging that to ask and answer for themselves three questions on this one pager. And so the first big question is, how are you at your best? You know, how do you know yourself to be when you're really at your best? And not just in your life at work, but in your life outside of work, your life at home, your life in your community, you think about peak peak performance kinds of experiences that you've had in any of those three arenas, what are the common denominators, you know, that describe you when you're really operating at your best, you know, kind of at, at the peak? Uh, the second big question is what are the routines that you either have in your life or you need to incorporate into your life to make it more likely that you uh, would lead and live at your best? And those routines come in four domains, uh, physical, mental, relational, and spiritual. And I'm trying to encourage people to identify their short list, you know, the short list that has a lot of leverage uh, in each of those routines. And we can talk more about, you know, criteria for selecting those routines, if you like. And then the third um, big question of the Life GPS is if so, if you were consistently living and leading at your best, what outcomes would you hope or expect to see in those three big arenas of life, your life at home, your life at work and your life in the community? Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Gandhi, and he said, in regard to every action, one must know the result that is, that is expected to follow, you know, otherwise known as cause and effect. You know, if, I, if I'm showing up at my best consistently, what outcomes would I expect to see? And it doesn't have to be specific to the letter. And, you know, you don't want to get wedded to it because there's things that we don't control. 
but notionally, what kinds of outcomes would I expect to see? It's, you know, that's cause and effect or in Gandhi's tradition, karma, right? And then so having all those answers on, on one page becomes just like Google Maps or Waze or Apple Maps or whatever you use on your device. You know, you enter the latitude and the longitude and, you know, you enter the address and then there's a latitude and a longitude associated with that. And through the magic of GPS technology, those satellites orbiting the earth, you know, iterate back and forth with your phone and the app to make adjustments in your route to help you arrive where you need to arrive. And, you know, entering those answers is a kind of a reference point, you know, like you pull it out once a week and ask yourself, how am I doing? You know, how am I doing on showing up at my best? How am I doing on the routines that help me do that? How am I doing on outcomes? And we can always improve, you know, like what adjustment do I want to make this week? It doesn't have to be 10 adjustments. Just pick one, you know, and be intentional about working it. Yeah, because I think it would be very powerful because I think one of the most powerful things that a, a leader can do is is take the time to reflect on themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, this sounds as though it would be a very good way for people to reflect, provide them with a little bit of structure and allow them to to, to think deeply about these things. Yeah, I, I completely agree with the structure point you just made. Um, it's a simple routine, right? But, you know, another one of my favorite quotes, which I'm, I'm sure you heard, is it's attributed to Aristotle. I think it's a summation of some different things that he wrote. But, uh, you know, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. You know, so what are the habits or routines that you need in your life to show up at the most excellent version of yourself, you at your best? And I, I find, you know, in corporate life, most executives and managers even, you know, they annually or, you know, on some sort of regular basis, they'll spend some time with their colleagues doing a strategic planning session, you know, you know, planning for the future and what they want to accomplish and how they're going to get there and all that. And so we do that in our organizational life pretty frequently. But I find a lot of people don't do that at all for themselves, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think there's uh, every reason that we should. And my, my wife and I, we came up with the GPS, the life GPS for ourselves, you know, 20 some plus years ago now when we were parents of young kids and life is at its craziest. And we were big fans of the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And I still love that book. I think it's great. But I always found it difficult to operationalize what Covey was talking about in that book. And so we just spent several weekends thinking like, okay, if we just had a one pager, you know, we, we were calling it Covey for dummies, basically. If we had a one pager that, you know, would be useful to us, what would it incorporate? And that's what we ended up with. So we've used it ourselves for 22 or three years now. And I have a little, we have coming up at the end of next month as we speak and at the end of November, or we'll take a weekend long retreat together and we have a lot of fun. We're going to go to wine country on the, on the retreat this year and we'll drink a lot of wine, but we'll, <laughs> but we'll spend uh, a fair amount of time that weekend talking about our life GPS and how we did this year and what we'd like to be different this coming year. And are there any adjustments we need to make in our routines or the way we think about ourselves or any of that. And it's just like super useful to get up on the balcony from time to time and take the bigger picture look and figure out how you want to operate when you're back down there on the dance floor. Yeah. Cause I think it's important because it covers both the, the personal professional, because I think you mentioned earlier about the, the issue with smartphones. I think the personal professional boundaries that have almost disappeared for, for, for many yeah. leaders. 
now. That's really true. I mean, the boundaries word, I think, is super important. I, I One of my favorite things to ask a group, you know, is two questions about boundaries. Question number one is, do you have any? <laughs> you know, because I, I think a lot of people, they used to have them, but they've, they've kind of let them go and they may don't, don't even realize it. Uh, and then the second question, okay, is if you have any boundaries, does anybody else know what they are? Because if they don't and you don't enforce your boundaries, you may as well not have them. And yeah, um, yeah it's, there's, there's, it's pretty basic stuff, but it's super important for yeah. people to get a, get a grip on. One of the things that uh, comes up for us in the leadership programs we run is quite often the, the leaders in the room uh, are looking for ideas and suggestions and techniques for being better communicators. And you've uh, mm-hmm. got, got this uh, model, pick up custom fit communications and let go of one size fits all communications. Are you able right. to expand a bit more on that? Sure. I mean, there's a cliche we have in the States. I don't know if you guys use it in Australia. If you're good with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, sometimes our communications can kind of fall into that trap. You know, we have a preferred way or style of communicating and, um, that may be effective, uh, probably not effective in all cases. And so custom fit communications is outcome oriented and audience specific. You know, what am I trying to do in this communications exchange uh, or whether it's a presentation or a conversation or a team meeting or whatever it might be. And um, who's, who's, who am I communicating with, you know, and, and so there are three questions that I learned many years ago from a, I think to me, he's one of the leading thinkers in the field of human resources, a guy named Dave Ulrich, who has been associated with the University of Michigan for many years. Uh, and Dave had taught me that any, any communications piece or exchange can be improved by considering three questions. What, so what, and now what, you know, what are we talking about? So what, what does, you know, why, why does this person or why should this group care? What do they care about? I mean, like, can I, can I shape my communications to answer the question? So what for them? Because if, if I, if I can't do that, then I better keep working on it until I can. And then now what, what do I want this person or this group to know or think or do or feel or believe next, you know, like what's the next step? What's the now what? And, you know, that especially in a business setting uh, or an organizational setting, I think those three questions are super important because, you know, it's usually about getting outcomes and it's usually about identifying next steps or solving the next part of the problem. And um, but to solve the problem or to get to the next step, people have to be motivated to take the next step. So the so what's really important and you got to be really clear about what are we talking about, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great little model. I like that one. So you talk about this idea of mastering wholesale communication. Mm-hmm. When you say that, uh, how do you mean? Well, so the comparison point is retail, right? There's, there's retail and there's wholesale. And uh, I think when you're coming up as a leader, most of your communications are what I would call retail communications, meaning that it's one-to-one or one-to-a-few. And, you know, it's pretty... It, by its nature is pretty high touch quite often. Uh, I think the further you go as a leader 
And I, I think this has changed some over the years. Certainly it's changed over the years with the emergence of social media because it's, I think it's probably less true than it used to be. Uh, but it, as, but as you take on larger roles as a leader, your communication style really has to account for a broader audience. So it's more of a wholesale approach, right? And, you know, there, there are different considerations in terms of how you custom fit the communications to reach a broader audience. Uh, but there are certainly uh, opportunities in terms of the modalities, you know, that you use to reach a broader audience. And again, you know, when I first wrote The Next Level in 2006, there was no such thing as Twitter. There was no such thing as Facebook. There was no such thing as Instagram, or I don't think there was even LinkedIn back then. And, you know, now, obviously, in 2018, all of that's there. So it's a lot easier for one person to reach a wholesale audience than it used to be. But as you're doing that, I think you need to be, and I think we see a lot of people not doing this in social, in, you know, in their social media and their and the way they wholesale their communications, you really got to consider the what, so what, now what again, and, you know, not just put noise into the system for the sake of putting noise into the system, but really consider like, what am I trying to do here? Uh, what do I want people to know? Uh, why should they care? Uh, is there anything I want them to do? What's the call to action? And really work through that as you, you know, whatever channels you're using, however broad an audience you're trying to reach, you know, I think, I think those questions are really important things to think through. Mm. You also, in the team presence uh, part of your model, you talk about this idea of picking up team reliance and letting go of self-reliance. Mm-hmm. So do you find that's a hard one for leaders to, to follow through on? <laughs> to you. <laughs> in your experience. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's why I wanted yeah, to totally. explore it. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's like the hardest, maybe, uh, because most people who end up in leadership positions uh, that I've observed over the years, you know, the large majority of them, over 80% for sure, got there because they're go-to people. Do you guys use that phrase in Australia? Yeah. Go-to person? Yeah. Okay, so, you know, so any group I talk to, you know, of of accomplished high potential senior leaders, whether they're high potential or senior, but they're in the room, you know, they've been selected for this program because they're good. And, and so I'll ask for a show of hands. How many of you either think of yourself or have thought of yourself or have had people tell you that you're a go-to person And most of them, if they're honest, they raise their hands. And the very next question is, so good. What do go-to people do that makes them go-to people? What do you think their number one answer is? They get stuff done. (laughs) Exactly. Number one answer. (laughs) Yeah, they get stuff done. Okay, so being a go-to person, great thing to be until it's no longer a great thing to be. And when is that? And it's it's when the scope gets to be so big you can't operate as the hero or the heroine anymore. And you've got to let it go. You've got to let go of that self-reliance and pick up team reliance. And so there's a shift that I think every go-to person has to make if they're going to scale their leadership, you know, and really have the broader impact that they have to have to be successful. They've got to make the shift from being the go-to person to that leader who builds and nurtures teams of go-to people. You know, that's the job now is for you not to be the go-to person anymore, but to, you know, coach people up. Uh, so that they're the go-to people. You've got a whole team full of them. And if you get that right, everything else is way better. 
Uh, and I imagine that would that would link very much to uh, one of the other points you talk about in the book, which is pick up defining what to do and let go of yeah. telling how to do it. Right, it totally does because, yeah, it, you know, it's interesting that one of the people I quote in the book, I didn't have the opportunity to interview him directly, but a, a friend of mine who worked with him at the time told me this. Um, Bob Pittman is an, uh, an American businessman who's, been a lot of different industries and a long track record of, of success. And back when America Online, if anybody remembers that, or AOL, if they even remember AOL at this point, but it used to be AOL, America Online, you know, they helped kind of create the, the internet <laughs> as we know it. I mean, you know, instant messaging and, you know, email and, you know, you've got mail and all of that you know, came out of AOL. So they used to be huge. And Pittman was executive vice president, I think, at AOL back then. His number two person there, chief operating officer, I guess. And he used to start every senior leadership team meeting, I'm told, by reminding everybody else in the room. He said, remember, folks, we're the keepers of the what, not the masters of the how. <laughs> you know, like our, our job is to really define what we're going to do here. And we've got plenty of people who are probably smarter than we are who are experts in the how, you know, and their version of how is probably going to be better than ours. And it's really hard, just like it's hard to let go of self-reliance. I think it's really hard for go-to people to let go of their version of how. Uh, and what they often find when they finally get to the point where they do is their team did it better, you know, or can do, can do it better. And by doing it better, that frees that leader up to do the stuff that only they can do in the leadership role that they're in because there are always resources and opportunities and access and all kinds of other intangible assets that accrue to you when you're in a designated leadership role in an organization. And because right now you're the incumbent, you're the person sitting in that leadership seat. There's certain things that only you can do. And that's a short list usually, but a very high impact, high leverage list. And there's a bunch of stuff you could do. There's a bunch of stuff you might like to do. You need to let go of that stuff because the this list of stuff that all you can do is where the where the leverage is, and you've got to let go of the how and focus a lot more on the what to make that shift. Mm. Uh, I think the you also talk in the book about this idea of getting the right people in the right roles, mm-hmm. and uh, I imagine that would be crucial to being able to let go of the how is by having those right people in those right roles. Sure. You, otherwise, you, you know, you kind of go into the death spiral, right? <laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, Jim Collins, you know, the author of Good to Great is famous for many, many great one-liners, but one of his best was, you know, get the right people in the right seats on the bus. Yeah. And, you know, very easy to write or say, very hard to do in practice. It's, I think it's a continuous process of and, and sort of constantly assessing are these the right people, you know, and they may be the right people for where we are now. Uh, are they going to be the right people to get where we need to go? Maybe, maybe not. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Okay. Now we've gotten to the next place uh, and we have aspirations that go beyond this. What are we going to need for this next go round? I, I think that's one of the key jobs of a leader is you know, you're sort of the chief talent management officer for your team. Yeah, sure, there's HR, but you're the one that's putting the team together. You're the one that's leading the team and setting the agenda and setting the goals and coaching people to reach the goals and all that kind of stuff. And 
you know, if you don't have good, good people and talented people and motivated people, a lot of that's on you, you know, to motivate them, but um, it doesn't work. And as you said before, it's a lot easier said and written on a piece of paper than done, isn't it? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I think, and I think, you know, I think the reason is because you're never done, you know, you're never done with that. It, it kind of, I don't know if we'll talk about delegation today, but I, I find a lot of managers kind of have a failure point with delegation. So, well, I delegated and they didn't do it right. And so <laughs> now I've got to take it back. <laughs> Did you see that? Yes. You know, so it's like, you know, like delegation is not like set in and forget it on your washing machine. I mean, you know, it's, it requires different levels of check-in and, and, you know, were you clear about what success looks like and what are the success measures and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's so many things to think about and be clear about when you're delegating it. And, and, and once you delegate it, you probably still have to check in and, and there's a lot of different things to pay attention to. So I think it's sort of the same thing with, you know, right people in the right roles. It's, you can't take your eye off that ball. You you constantly have to pay attention to it. Mm. I think one of one of the the crucial things about getting those right people in the right roles is something that you talk about. We talk about the importance of expectations when they're clear and when they're they're not clear. And my experience tells me that's one of the biggest challenges leaders are facing in terms of mm-hmm. setting expectations for their own team, but also having expectations set for them. Yeah. 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 You mean like upward, you mean like kind of the managing up part of it? Yeah. Both ways actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. For, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, um, there's a model that I reference in the book. I first saw it at GE, uh, and, and some of the work that came out of GE years ago, but I'm, I'm told it was developed prior to GE. I don't remember the name of the, the, the fellow who developed it, but it's, uh, GRPI and it's a kind of a diagnostic and and what GRPI means are goals. What are the goals for the, for the organization or for the team? The R is roles and responsibilities. Are we clear what everybody's roles and responsibilities are? Uh, The P stands for plans and processes, you know, like what are the plans that are going to get us to the goals? What processes are we going to use to make sure that we're on track with the plan and, you know, to stay in touch and communicate with each other and measure it along the way and the milestones and everything else that goes with that. And then the I is for interpersonal norms. You know, what are our ground rules for operating with each other? Well, any one of those four things, GRPI, is all about expectations, you know, and it's it's all about making it clear. And, you know, one of the things I've concluded over the years in working with lots of different people is quite often you'll see a lack of preparation, uh, you know, we just kind of dive into things without giving a thought really to what are we trying to do here and what has to be in place for that to happen? How do we need to show up as leaders to do this or how do we need to operate as a team to do this? And I love these little diagnostics, you know, like the grippy model. Uh, I've got one that's in the new edition of the book that I developed for a delegation called track, you know, what's the task uh, what's the clear request around the task? What the A is what does the achievement look like if we're wildly successful? What what's full on achievement look like? C stands for check-ins. What's the process for that? And K is knowledge that we hope to gain from this. And kudos, what kind of recognition might there be? Uh, and rewards might there be? 
if um, you know if this all goes well. And I've I've got a more detailed diagnostic or planning sheet around those five things. And I I find you know five minutes of thinking through something like that or an hour of talking with your team about the goals and the roles and the processes and the interpersonal norms. It's incredibly good ROI on that stuff, but a lot of people don't go there. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's it's worth the worth the investment of time. One of the things that I learned in my corporate career, and this is sort of the punchline to a long story that I won't tell, but the punchline uh, in this group conversation was what doesn't get said doesn't get heard. You know, and I think sometimes we just think, well, I don't need to say that. That's obvious. Well, obvious to you. <laughs> Maybe not obvious to everybody else, you know, check it, you know, say it. And, you know, like uh, they say, really, is that it? Okay. Now we can have a good conversation to make sure we're all clear. One of the models that we uh, introduced to our clients, and I actually did it with a a brand new client last week is the grow model, Mm. which is for coaching and and you've referenced it in, in here. I'm curious to know how, how you use it and, and what would have been some of the outcomes that you've been able to achieve or your clients have been able to achieve through using that model. Yeah. Um, so let's give credit to the late, great uh, John Whitmore, who I, I got credit with developing that model. He wrote a great book years ago called Coaching for Performance. And I think he passed away a couple of years ago. An amazing, I read, read his obituaries. He had an amazing life. He was a, a Formula One uh, amateur Formula One driver, <laughs> in addition to being a coach, which wow. is very cool. But uh, Whitmore developed the GROW model, I think. And and so that's another acronym, and it stands for what's the goal? You know, again, what are we trying to do? Sort of the same as Griffey, what's the goal? Uh, the R stands for reality. Where are we now? You know, what's the current state? The O stands for options. What can we do to change the current state of reality and make things better? And the W, I've seen it described different ways, but I usually say it stands for what's next. Um, you know, what what are the next one or two steps? Not the next hundred, but the next one or two. And so what I've added to Whitmore's um, framework are a set of questions for each of those four big headers, goals, reality, options, and what's next. And uh, one thing I love to do is uh, I have my clients uh, and, and folks in my workshop audiences uh, when we're doing a workshop, I have them think of a real life problem or a real life opportunity that they either need to solve or take advantage of, but they haven't figured it out yet how to do it and pair them up for eight minutes. Okay. You're going to coach person A is going to coach person B. Here's your script. And it's a series of sequence questions, most of which start with the word what, uh, because I think most good coaching questions start with the word what, and about any question you can think of can be reframed as a what question. And we talk more about that if you want, but, um, and then just walking it through. And one of the big pivot points in the, in the sequence of the questions that I want them to ask uh, is at the end of the reality box on the grid. Uh, the last question is, so what have you tried so far? You know, like, okay, this is your reality. And what have you tried so far to fix that? And so the person answers. And then the very first question in the options uh, part of the script is what else could you try? And I always say when we're introducing it, by that question, what else could you try right times three? So we're in the coaching conversation. So Julian, what have you tried so far? You're going to say, well, I've tried this. Okay, great. What else could you try? Hmm, I don't know. I could try that. Perfect. What else could you try? 
oh gosh, I don't know. I could try this other thing. Great. What else could you try? Well, Scott, you're annoying the hell out of me now. Yeah, I don't care. What else could you try? And okay, well, I guess I could try this other thing. Okay. And so what always happens is usually as they go through it and they, and they identify, okay, which one of these things are you really going to follow through on? What are the next steps? Quite often, they're going to decide that the second or third idea they had on what else could you try is the one that's really worth pursuing. And just by the persistence of saying, okay, what else, what else, what else? You, you get people out of their thought patterns, you know, they just like, they, they just like round up the usual suspects almost, you know, it's like, I'm going to do what I've always done. Well, really, you're going to get what you always got. So like, what else could you try? And I find that really, really kind of the pivot point of the conversations for people quite often. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a very well received coaching model uh, over here. A lot, a lot, a lot of organizations yeah. use it and really try to get, get, get their leaders to start thinking of themselves a bit more as coaches. Yeah, I think completely. I mean, he's you know, uh, Whitmore was a Brit, you know, out of the UK and the book coaching for performance. We actually share the same publisher uh, is the publisher of that book as a publisher of the next level. And I think it's their number one bestseller uh, or number two, at least, and has been for years uh, is the coaching for performance book mm. global. You know, it's a, it's a global bestseller. Yeah. So you also talk about this idea of, uh, building next level capacity. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm curious to explore that a little bit with you. Yeah, um, I'm curious what what resonated with you about that point. Uh, look, it's, it's one of those things I think where I, I think a lot of the stuff which gets in people's way is is a little voice that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. before. And I see my role as a, as a facilitator when I'm in front of the room is to help them sort of push that little voice to the side and highlight the fact that, you know, if they want to achieve something, they can. And I think it's quite often about you know, what's their capability, what's their capacity for, for, for being the best they can be. And so when, mm-hmm. I, when, I, when I read it here, I thought, oh, God, I want to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. I, I said a minute ago that I, I think the best coaching questions start with what. Um, and I, I learned that years ago from a coach here in the States named Laura Berman Fortgang. I was in a workshop that she was leading and she made that point and really believes it because her point was uh, what questions are like the Google, the Google of questions. You know, it's like typing in a question to the search field on Google. You get a lot of stuff back, right? And so what opens up a range of possibilities, you know, and, you know, I could, I could ask, uh, you know, like I could ask you, why did you do that? And if I ask you that question, what's your reaction to why did you do that? Like emotionally, what's your reaction? Uh, that there's, that you're questioning my decision, that you're yeah. uh, n- not, not quite sure about why I did it and, yeah, you're going to feel a little defensive or, yeah. you know, maybe, you know, like this person doesn't think I'm smart enough or whatever, right? Yeah. But I could I could reframe that question as, Julian, what was your thought process on that, right? Yeah. And it feels a little bit different somehow because now I'm talking about this thing called my thought process. I still learn why you did it, but I'm just <laughs> like making, I'm, I'm still I'm just making it easier for you to, to answer it and think through it and not feel so defensive. And I think, I think, you know, it's, and I'm not sure this exactly 
answers your question where you wanted to go. But one of the things that I've noticed over the years in working with leaders is um, the emotional component quite often gets overlooked uh, when they're thinking through, um, you know, how they interact with their their team or their colleagues or whatever. You know, it's there, there's logic and then there's emotion and, and maybe long on logic and short on emotion, emotional consideration. And, you know, the way you frame questions, the way you coach, the way you interact is either going to open people up or shut them down. And um, maybe it's not that binary, but I think those are two ends of the spectrum. And um, I, I don't know. I just think it's worth considering. Like, you know, like one of my favorite questions, like two of my favorite questions, like if I, if I could only ask two questions as a coach, uh, they would be, so what are you trying to do? Like in this next thing, like, what are you trying to do? What ha- what's success look like? And then the second question is, how do you need to show up to make that likely? And that's where the value is. You know, most people are pretty clear on what they're trying to get done. A lot of the time they are, but I find they give very short shrift to how they need to show up, you know, with their energy level, with their tone of voice, with their body language, just all of those, you know, sometimes called intangible. I don't think they really are uh, intangible components of the overall experience, you know, and, what do I want this person to think? How do I, they need, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a coach uh, named Alexander Kaye, who's a friend and colleague of mine. And he's famous for what he calls the thinking path, which you can think about it from left to right. Let's start in the right hand side. It ends with results. Okay. So what is it that creates results? Actions create results. And where do actions come from? Well, they usually come from thoughts. So you've got thoughts, and actions and results kind of in that order. But what gets missed is in between the thought and the action is a feeling, you know? And, and so the thought always generates an emotional response. So you have to ask yourself, not just what do I need, want these people to think or how do I need them to think to get to the action that leads to the result? I also need to think through how do they feel you know, or how do they, you know, what kind of feeling and emotional state is going to lead to the action that gets the best result? And so do I want them to feel excited and well supported and all the things that lead to positive actions and positive results? Or do they feel discouraged and disenfranchised and put upon and not valued or whatever? Um, you know, you got to think through that stuff and adjust your actions accordingly, adjust your approach accordingly because negative emotions rarely lead to great actions and great results. Yeah. And you actually talk about this idea of picking up accountability for many results and letting go of responsibility for few results. See, they're very obviously tied together. Yeah, they are. And I think the, the shorthand way to talk about that, and this is kind of the last part of the team presence part of the book is uh, if you're responsible, you do it. If you're accountable, you own it. And I think too many leaders and, and managers and executives are stuck in doing it. And, and the, the analogy I use, um, you know, here in the States, a lot of people live in the suburbs and they have grass covered yards and, you know, they have a lawnmower and they can cut their own grass. And a lot of people I talk to actually like to cut their own grass you know, because it gives me 45 minutes or an hour to 
not really think about anything other than doing the yard work and nobody trims the edges the way I do. And, you know, the lines are perfect and all this, you know, whatever they, it is that they enjoy about that. So great. You can be personally responsible for cutting your own grass and you, you can do that. Let's think though, like if you owned a yard care service that cut a thousand yards a week, there's no way you can be personally responsible for all that. You're accountable for it. You own the results, but you don't do it. The results you've got crews that are out there cutting all those yards for you and taking care of all those lawns and yards and they are, they're doing it, but you got to own it. Right. And be accountable for it. And so there are different systems and processes that you've got to put in place to be accountable in an effective way, you know, the measurement systems and the reporting systems and the, and the routines and the cycles you go through just to stay on top of everything and make sure everybody's got what they need to do the work and that they're doing good work and that the customers are happy and, you know, all of that. So that's the distinction. I really like that grass analogy. Do you have a yard with grass? Uh, I used to, I don't now, but I think, uh, I think that's a really clever way of explaining it. So in a way that makes sense to people. So I'd like to, uh, explore this idea of looking left, right, and diagonally as you Mm -hmm. lead. Uh, I was intrigued by that. Yeah. So that's the first pick up and let go distinction in the organizational presence or engaging your colleagues part of the book. And, um, I think, you know, you've got to look up and down. You've got to look up to your boss and and down to your team. If you think about the traditional organizational model, I mean, you know, you're leading the team. They they need your time and attention. Uh, You work for your boss, uh, you know, on the upward axis and part of the axis. And you you need to do an effective job of keeping your boss in the loop and making sure that your agenda is aligned and all of that. So the up and down, really vitally important, but I think a lot of people stop there. Uh, you know, and it's what I call vertical tunnel vision. I mean, you know, they just kind of like get focused on the up and the down, up and down. It's like, you know, all they see is the vertical. And there's a, a lot of research. I think uh, I always refer to a, a gentleman named Rob Cross, who is now at Babson College in, in the U.S. But for years, Rob was at the University of Virginia at the, at the Darden School there, the business school. And uh, no, actually McIntyre School of Commerce. I think it was the undergrad school, but Rob started an organization years ago called the Network Roundtable, and he's still doing that. It's called the Collaborative Commons, I think now, but he got into that whole field of study uh, based on a research study that he did um, years ago, decades ago now, where they stu- he and his colleagues studied um, 200, what was it? To, um, the top 20% of performers in 200 different organizations. So use the performance management system to identify who are the top 20% of the people in this company. And then they interviewed those people to try to figure out what are you doing that the other 80% aren't doing so well. The number one answer was they manage their networks better than everybody else. And so they didn't just manage up and down, they manage left and right. You know, who are my colleagues on either side of me at the peer level that I need to collaborate with and engage with, engage your colleagues and to collaborate with to get bigger results, you know, one plus one equals three kind of results. And then where what really set them apart was they didn't just go left and right. They worked the diagonals. They didn't really care what the hierarchy was or, you know, who had more status or less status or who was inbounds or out of bounds. They just went after people who could help them 
accomplish their agendas and try to establish good, sound working relationships with those people. So it ends up being sort of a 360-degree approach to networking. There's not just up and down. There's not just left and right, but there's diagonals up and down and, you know, leftish and rightish, right? And so that's kind of what I mean by left, right, diagonally is, you know, that that vision in mind of somebody who's really clear about what they're trying to accomplish and is not limiting uh, their resources to themselves and their team, you know, or whoever's immediately visible. They're really searching for who's the, who are the people I need to work with who are the best possible people to accomplish the results that we need to accomplish. In talking about uh, networking, you actually give uh, in the book uh, five steps to building uh, the network. Are you able to run through those? Because I find yeah. that what the networking is one of the, the most uh, unfocused things that happens in, in leaders that I uh, work with, that they don't necessarily view networking as, as a core part of what they do. They tend to be focused uh-huh. on results and, and and getting a job done. So I'm, I'm always... Yeah promoting the value of building a strong network. So what are the five steps? Yeah, yeah. so I, I give a little preamble to the five steps. I, I completely agree with what you just said. I see it too. And uh, one of the questions I'll usually ask of a group, um, how many of you believe that um, it's really actually important to do a good job of managing your network, you know, that it's a strategic advantage to manage your ne- manage your network well? And usually like 90, you know, 90 to hundred percent of the people are going to say, yeah, yeah, it's really important. And the next question is how many of you think you're doing a great job with that? And usually you see five to 10% of the people say, yeah, I think I'm doing a great job. So like 90% or more think it's important, but aren't really doing a very good job with it. Okay. So the next question, why is that? Like, why, why aren't you managing your network if you all think it's important? I guess I'll ask you again, what do you think their number one answer is? Not my job. That's for salespeople. It's often the one I yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. The one I hear the most is time. Like, uh, yeah, I'd like to. I just don't have time, right? And I, there's this cartoon from the New Yorker magazine that is a classic cartoon from there that I'll show on the screen sometimes. It's this guy at his desk looking at his calendar, you know, on his desk, his planner laid out on his desk. He's on the phone. And the caption of the, uh, the picture of this guy on the phone looking at his, his calendar is, no, no, Thursday's out. How about never? Is never good for you? <laughs> you know, and it's, I think people love that because it's like, oh yeah, like I don't have time for one more networking event or one more coffee or one more lunch, you know? So like I, t- I got too much to do. And so what, really, what I'm trying to get on to focus on is here, you don't have to worry about another networking event. Like what are you working on that requires expertise or uh, innovative thinking or collaboration? that you and your team can't get on your own, right? And so now we get to the five steps. Okay, so you're busy people. Step number one is you gotta be relevant. You gotta be relevant to yourself. You know, like you gotta be clear with yourself about why what you're working on is relevant. And you gotta be clear why it would be relevant to somebody else, you know, the people that you might need, whose help you might need. So step one, number one is get really clear on relevance. Step two is to have a really clear declaration of what it is you're trying to do and why it matters. You know, so I'm working on this so that we can get this outcome, whatever it is. And the advice I've started to give in the last several years is your declaration really shouldn't be any longer than the length of an old school tweet. It should be about 140 characters. Uh, And if it's longer than that, 
keep working on it until you get it shorter than you know shorter because you don't want to make people work really hard to figure out what you're trying to do and why it matters. So you know, crafting that declaration, I think, is really key. And then step three is that sets you up to make a clear request. And so, you know, I, for instance, I'm working on this so that we can accomplish this other thing. Uh, I know you've done something like this in the past. I've heard that you had amazing success with it. Could I spend an hour with you just picking your brain and getting the download on that? Or you've got some resources that I on your team that I would love to borrow for a week or two. Would that be possible? You know, just like a clear, specific request that relates to the declaration that is clearly relevant about, you know, what it is you're doing. And then step four is if you're going to make a request, you have to be prepared to have the curiosity and the intent to make offers to the other person. So like, you know, I've made a request of you. What are you working on? And and tell me what your main goals are right now and really sincerely listen to the answer and then be prepared and be looking for an opportunity to make an offer that might be of help to that person. So now we've established some reciprocity perhaps, right? You're asking them for help, but, uh, you're also offering help and maybe they're accepting it. And so that, if that goes well, then that leads to the fifth thing, which is trust, you know, and, and so I don't have to have coffee with you every month to trust you, however nice it might be. But if we had a good experience working together on this initiative for this project and, you know, my favorite definition of trust comes from a, a gentleman out of Chile named Fernando Flores and, He's had many different careers, politics and others, but the one that he's that I know him from is linguistics. He's a linguist, and he says there are basically three components to trust, uh, sincerity, credibility, and competence. You know, So if I demonstrated I was sincere, I acted with good intent, I was credible, I did what I said I was going to do when I did it, and I was competent, I did a great job with what I said I was going to do and delivered it when I said I was going to then that builds trust. And if we both have that experience with each other, then we don't talk to each other for a year or two, maybe. And something comes up where it would be helpful to connect with each other again and work with each other again. We're going to answer the email or take the call because we had a good trust building experience previously. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a really good model. I think which forces people to think of what's the value they can add to the relationship as opposed to always thinking, what can I get? Yeah, that's so key, right? You know, it's gimme, gimme, gimme. You know, what's in it for me? Well, okay, what's in it for you? <laughs> yeah. So uh, as we come close to um, the end, I'd like to just uh, also explore this idea of where you talk about in Chapter 10, pick up a big footprint view of your role and let go of a small footprint view of your role. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the people I interviewed for the original edition of the book was a retired army general named Steve Rippey. And um, Steve told me that in the army, there's a well-known maxim uh, that goes, the further up the flagpole you go, the more your ass shows. (laughs) 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 And I think that's kind of the essence of this idea of a big footprint. You know, when you're a leader, uh, you're always on stage when you're a designated leader, Uh, whether you recognize it or not, or, uh, care about it or not, uh, you you need to recognize it and you should care about it because people are always watching you and they're taking their cues from you. And I, I found this out through my own experience and being a corporate executive myself. 
through different experiences I had and conversations I had where I remember one, I was, I was, I was leading HR in my last company and um, I love books. I've, you know, probably obvious I've referenced a lot of books in this conversation, but uh, there was a book I loved back then and I still love. It's a great book called uh, slowing down to the speed of life. And I bought that book by the box for a while and would just hand it out to people. And I said to my HR group, who I'd give everybody a copy of it. I said, well, you know, if you guys like this, I'll, I'll host a little book club for five or six weeks and we'll meet on Tuesday mornings at eight and, you know, kick off our day by talking about the book and thinking about how we can apply some of this stuff in our own lives and our work. So we had a, we had a nice little group, you know, 10 or 15 people in the book club. And one of those people was an administrative assistant who worked around the corner from me named Lisa. And so I had known Lisa, you know, an acquaintance really for two or three years at that point, but didn't really know her, you know, but I got to know her better in the book club and about three or four weeks into it, she sent me an email one day. She said, Scott, just wanted to let you know how much I'm enjoying the book and the, the discussion group. But the best part of this for me has been getting to know you better and learning that not all vice presidents have green blood and horns. <laughs> and I, I just was like stunned by that, like green blood and horns. How could she think that about me? Like I had green blood and horns, but then I, then my second thought was, wait a second. It wasn't you, you know, not all, it was not about Scott has green blood and horns. It was not all vice presidents. And that was like a huge aha for me because it was like, oh, wow, she's got this story about people at the vice president level and above, and they're all monsters or ogres. That's her story about us. And so quite often, you know, you get this title, which is kind of cool, and your your spouse and your parents are maybe impressed by that for a while. But it's like, I think you start out at a deficit almost sometimes with the, with the organization as a whole because they've got stories about people like you, <laughs> you know, and they're usually not positive. And, and in the absence of real information, people make stuff up, you know. Or maybe they actually have real information and it really was a crappy experience with all this vice presidents. And so you've got to work that. I mean, it's like I was talking about earlier, thinking, feeling, action, results. You know, they're they're taking cues from you that lead to their thoughts and the way they feel about you and the organization. And that's going to have an impact on the actions they take and ultimately the results you get. So you've totally got to manage that dynamic and really be super aware of how you're coming across. Yeah, which very much fits into this idea of, that you talk about, about minding your message. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I actually took this out of the third edition because it, things didn't end well for him. But uh, there's a guy in the States who's uh, passed away a couple of years ago named Roger Ailes. And Roger Ailes first became known as... Um, like the media manager for the Nixon campaign, the reelect for Richard Nixon. And then he went on to found Fox News, which is a whole other conversation. But Roger Ailes had a book actually that I think he wrote before Fox News called You Are the Message, which I thought was a great title for a book. You know, you are the message, meaning it's like Marshall Marshall, Marshall McLuhan, I think, you know, great thinker. Said so the medium is the message, you know, uh, well, you're the medium, you're the vessel as, as a leader of, of a lot of agendas, you know, and, and the overall agenda. And, uh, you know, to rip off the title from the Ailes book, you are the message, you know, it's, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And 
it's not just what you're saying, it's what you're not saying. <laughs> and uh, that can either be intentional or unintentional about what you're not saying. And there's just a lot to think about. And you, you really, if you're a senior leader, you really don't have any time off, you know, in terms of message management, because even your, uh, especially in the age of social media, as we've seen again and again and again with, you know, videos that go viral and, and so forth, you know, one, one bad day can, can cause a lot of damage, <laughs> mm. you know, these days. I mean, it can just it can go viral so quickly. So you really got to think about, you know, what am I trying to do and how do I need to show up here all the time? I think scary, really. None mm-hmm. of us are perfect, but I think you got to be in those questions. Yeah, it's a constant, isn't it? Often, often the, over here, the people talk about this idea of leading by example and just always recognizing that, as you said, they're on, you're on, they're on stage. Yeah. 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 So the, the, the final thing I'd just like to get your perspective on is you, you suggest that everyone should create an executive success plan. What, why should they do that? To get better. <laughs> That's a simple answer uh, because we can always all be better, I think. Um, and what was good enough last year or last month is probably not going to be good enough next month or next year. I don't mean to be like reductionist about it or pessimistic about it, but the world is always changing and things are always moving forward and we've got to continue to grow along with the rest of the world, right? Um, so the executive success plan um, I mentioned Marshall Goldsmith very early in the conversation. It was inspired by Marshall Goldsmith's speed forward process. And um, I encourage my clients to pick one, no more than two things that they could work on. The more specific, the better, the more behavioral, really the better that could make them more effective leaders. And uh, we have a 360 that goes with the next level that we use in different programs. And we have a self-assessment that's sort of a, a one third version of the 360. Uh, 72 behaviors in the 360, 27, I think, or whatever the math is. I'm trying to, th- I'm trying to remember the math, but I think it's around 27 behaviors in the self-assessment. Um, yeah, it's definitely 27. It's three behaviors for each of the nine pick up and let go distinctions. Those are pretty specific, specific behaviors that leaders need to take a look at when they're moving in the next level situation. So pick one or two of those or pick another one that's not on the list that you think would make a difference and identify a small number, no, no less than five, probably no more than 10, a uh, small number of colleagues who should have regular line of sight and how you're showing up day in and day out, like they get to work with you enough to have data points for you and tell them what you're working on and then ask them this question, what are, what's your one or two, what, what's your best piece of advice for anybody who's working on what I'm working on, like being a better listener? Okay, my best piece of advice for you is working on being a better listener. Don't interrupt so much. Okay, great. <laughs> Write that down, right? And if you ask 10 people for two ideas on your thing, you're going to end up with a list of 20 ideas. There'll probably be some ideas that are on that list more than once. Those are probably clues for you that that's the thing that you should actually work on, like not interrupting so much. And then you go back to your colleague and say, you know, after talking with all of you, I've concluded that what I really need to work on is not interrupting so much. Would you be my partner in that? Like I, if you see me doing it, would you like, would you give me like a sign in the meeting that I'm doing it again so I can stop and I eventually will modify my behavior because it, you're doing a couple of things by doing that. One is you're actually changing your behavior 
foot too by continuing to engage with your colleagues as you're working on getting better, you're changing their perception of your behavior. You're changing their story about you. Scott is a guy who's interrupted me for the last 10 years. I hate him because he's always interrupting me. Oh, now he's trying to work on it and I can see him working on it. And I'm actually telling him from time to time that, hey, you're getting better. You're not interrupting me so much. So now my story about Scott has changed, right? Because we all work in systems, you know, systems of people and behavior change. You probably see this in your work. I think behavior change usually lags perception change. I could actually be better at not interrupting in probably 30 to 60 days if I was really working at it. But if I've been doing it for three years, people's perception of my behavior is not going to change in 30 to 60 days unless I help them see the change. And so that's that's what the executive success plan is. Fantastic. I think I'm going to recommend everyone jump on and and, uh, and start uh, to, to look at that. So, Scott, you. I hope you do. Know more about you and, and the work that you do, uh, where should they go? Um, so there's two thoughts on that. If you want to learn more specifically about the third edition of the next level that we've had a very thorough conversation about, thank you for that. Uh, you can go to thenextlevel.info. So thenextlevel.info for information on the third edition of the book. And if you want to learn more about me and what I do in general, uh, go to Eblin Group, like my last name, E is in E, B is in boy, L-I-N is in Nancy, and the word group, G-R-O-U-P dot com, eblingroup.com. Well, Scott, thank you so much for, for being a part of the podcast. I'll, I'm going to do a shameless plug on your behalf that I think everyone should uh, buy the book. I think it's a, it's, it's a great read. And just want to say thanks again for being part of the podcast. My pleasure. And I really appreciate uh, all your questions. Like, I don't think I've ever had anybody uh, go so in depth on, (laughs) on on everything in the book. So uh, you win the award for that, Julian. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergy Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synergygroup.com.au. See you next time.